The World According to Gorf. The World According to Gorf on the Nahum Siegel Network welcomes Rob Dietz. Rob, shalom, shalom. Shalom. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? Wonderful to have you. Typically, Rob and I meet up in Los Angeles when we work together on Pella, P-E-L-L-A, Los Angeles's first and foremost Simcha a cappella group, performing at bar and bat mitzvahs and smachot like weddings, events, occasions, and so forth. Coming to a social hall near you. <laughs> Pella draws from a pool of over 150 great vocal singers that we customize in order to put together the right group for each particular event. And for a long time, for a couple of years, I worked hard to build an indigenous Los Angeles group so that clients wouldn't have sure. to bear the expense of flying people in necessarily. They would have locals ready to go. Rob was one of my very first recruits. But before we talk about Pella, give us, if you would, a summary of what you do professionally, and then we'll talk about your background, and it'll become clear very quickly why I've invited you, someone that I consider to be on the vanguard of Jewish people performing a cappella to the world according to Gorf. I am an arranger and vocal coach for The Sing-Off on NBC, which means that I'm part of the music team that oversees basically anything that has to happen for the music to get on the air, um, except for the choreography and, and cameras and things like that. Anything uh, in the arrangements or the performance of the music um, from a musical standpoint that has to happen, I'm part of that team. So we film whenever that show happens to be on the air, which is not now, but is often uh, during the holiday season. We usually film over the summer. Sometimes we filmed this past season, we filmed in uh, over Thanksgiving. And that's sort of my main gig out in Los Angeles, more or less. When that's not happening, I'm also a freelance acapella arranger and coach and clinician. And I work with groups all over the country and the world uh, doing their arrangements and coaching them and just making them better, basically. I'm also a part-time performer with a couple of groups uh, out here in Los Angeles. I'm with Level. I'm also with Pella. And I sing with a group called The Funks cross-country. That's uh, Those people are scattered we have two people in upstate New York. We've got two people here, although actually one of the guys who's L.A.-based is currently in Taiwan, so it's even a little bit more scattered than it usually is. And that's kind of my main thing. I'm really I'm a full-time acapella dude. So before we get into what it takes to be a full-time acapella dude, or as you would say here, a full-time acapella bacher, can you tell us your background? Where are you from? Where did you study? And how were you trained formally in music? So I'm originally from upstate New York, a little town called Ithaca in the middle of nowhere, famous for Cornell and the movie Road Trip. I went to Ithaca College, stayed right in town for school, an amazing music program there at Ithaca. It was founded as a conservatory, and it's still one of the, the strongest programs they have. So I stayed there, and I studied. I got a dual degree in music and business. It was a bachelor in music with an outside field in business. So let's see, I graduated from that, and I went and did, honestly, as an excuse to go to Australia, I did a graduate program in Australia for composition and production, which I didn't finish because I got the job on the sing-off. So I cut that short and came to L.A. for the sing-off, and then loved the weather here because I grew up in upstate New York, and it's terrible, and just decided to stay here in the sunshine because I can do what I do from basically anywhere. And yeah, that was the plan, just decided to stay in the sun rather than go back to the, the gloom and the clouds and the negative 20, which is when I went back and visited last time it was colder in Ithaca than it was in Antarctica. So I decided I would not like to live there anymore and I would like to stay here. 
Tell me about your musical training. What specifically did you study in music, and how did those qualifications lead you towards a cappella? Because a cappella, even though it's had quite the populist boon lately with Glee, with Pitch Perfect, honestly, as as many people in a cappella these days like to say, I really majored in a cappella,、um, which basically means that I spent the majority of my time and energy in you know leading my a cappella group. I was in a group called Ithaca Cappella at Ithaca College. I spent the majority of my time, you know, really focused on making that group great and contributing to that group. And as it turned out, that wound up being my path. I wasn't a hundred percent sure at that time that that was going to be what I was going to do for the rest of my life, but it definitely wound up being a good path for me to develop my energy there because all of my experiences, you know, directing that group and arranging for that group and leading that group, all became completely directly relevant to everything I wound up doing afterwards. Especially my work on the sing-off. I one particular story I had is that I was the musical director of the cappella and. We had a couple big all male groups come out for the first season of the show that I worked on, and there were a couple of times where I would just sit down with the music directors of that group and just say, "Man, you know, I get how much this, how hard this is, and this, you know, what a challenge this is. I, just, I did it myself. I did it myself just a couple of years ago, and I was able to work through some issues with them just having immediately done it. So that was a big part of my my training to do what I do now. You know, a lot of voice lessons too. I studied a classical voice and, and had that training, and I got a lot of ability to coach vocally from. Having my own lessons and、uh, the work that I did there, and, and the choirs that I was in, I was in the choir at, at Ithaca for four years,、uh, two years in the chorus, and then two years in the select choir, and got a lot of great training in group singing from that experience. The truth of the matter is,、uh, most of my training just came from practical experience and getting on the job and, and trial and error. And I've been arranging now for I started when I was fourteen, so about thirteen years now. Let's talk about how you figured out how to arrange music. You said you looked at the sheet music for Billy Joel's "Only the Good Die Young," and then the Monkees was your very first true arrangement. How did you figure it out? Did you take lessons? Is there somebody out there who says this is how you make an arrangement? How do you do it? It's really all of the above, but for me, it sort of happened in a very specific order.、Um, the first thing I tried to do was. You know, you begin when you arrange. I believe you do a lot of transcriptive arranging, which means you really just sort of write down what's already happening in the original song. That was certainly how I began. I think that's how a lot of arrangers start out. So what you're saying is you're listening to the song and you're figuring out, okay, I got to listen really closely to that bass line and write down that bass line. I got to listen really closely to what the synth is doing and I got to write the synth. Exactly. But not everybody can hear that. Most people hear just kind of a wash of music and it sounds good. How did you know that you could just break it apart? I think for me, it just Came out of you know ear training and being in choir and I, you know I, I always had some some ability to do that and to and to hear that naturally but also just from training that skill from singing with other people and singing in groups where I had to hold my own part and I think it's a skill that you can develop to you know being able to isolate your ear and, and strengthen your ear for yourself so that you don't have to you know get dragged off by other parts and you can figure out you know what's going on within a larger you know wash of sound and how do you take the transcription then to something that is first and foremost an acapella Song and and you know what maybe we should take a step back and define what makes a good acapella arrangement in your opinion a contemporary acapella arrangement.、Uh, what makes a good acapella arrangement in my opinion is something that fits the group well and allows them to give a great performance. If you sample the hundred people leaving an acapella concert and you say you know what do you remember the most about this concert, most of their comments are going to relate to performance things rather than like. Complex musical things that they heard in the arrangement. I think that the arrangement, while you want to pick moments that people really can can you know、uh, latch onto and remember, 
I think really the key is you want to create something that is going to allow the singers to get into it naturally and, you know, not have to worry too much about the crazy complexity of what they're doing. There are certain groups that is more the goal of what they're doing, and that's great. Let's talk about in the old days when I started with Bita Hone in 1990-whatever it was, we were six guys who rehearsed things to a T and stood around a microphone, sang to tape, and then edited with razor blades, uh, reel-to-reel tape. That's how it began. Nowadays, the process is very different. In fact, you know what? Let's take a break for a second. Let's listen to one of those original analog, quote-unquote, songs and hear what that sounds like on The World According to Gorf, the Nachum Siegel Network.
The World According to Gorf. That was a Beat Achon song. That was beautiful. Thank you. Done in the good old days where you had to rehearse and know your stuff in order to be able to record. But nowadays, the process is a little different. We were talking with Rob Dietz, coach of the sing-off and an accomplished musical arranger, how there is a difference, perhaps, in acapella material for performance versus acapella material for recording. And we're going to begin by talking about what is the process of recording an acapella song these days. Take it away, Rob. These days it is very different and I think that, you know, it's there are pros and cons to the way that it's done now, you know, the the style that you're talking about. So, okay, so back in the day, you know, the, the due to the limits of the technology and and what was available at the time, you pretty much had to record all at the same time. You often didn't, since there were so many people in the group, you didn't have the ability to isolate their parts, so you couldn't really do all that much editing, because every microphone was picking up everything that was happening. Uh, if you even had individual microphones on individual people, sometimes it was just, you place a couple of microphones in the whole room and you record everything that's happening live. And the benefit, I think, to that is, you know, it captures a certain live spirit. It captures, you know, a little bit more of that raw vocal energy that people really respond to. The negative side of that is, of course, that you don't have a whole lot of quality control, right? You have, you know, it's whatever happens in the room happens and that's it. And, you know, you have to live with that for the rest of eternity on tapes. So over the years, people decided, yeah, we don't really like that so much. I mean, what we started to do today is we do what's called single track recording, which is where you have some kind of guide. So you'll have like a piano track or a MIDI or a click track or something that gives you a reference point for what you're recording. And in, people in the group will come in individually, one at a time, uh, and record their part along with that click track. And then you'll stack those parts up, and that will make the, the final recording. Um, and what that allows you to do is something called editing. You can do uh, you know timing and pitch correction um, with programs called like Auto-Tune and Melodyne. These are things people have, people have heard of and have varying opinions on. But, uh, you know, creates this more controlled sound. And I think that, you know, the benefit of that is that you, you do have a more, uh, in tune and often you, you have more control over the, the nuances of individual vocal colors. So for example, if you've got like, you know, a baritone part comes in and you say like, Hey, I really want you to nail, you know, this one line in your part with this kind of like, you know, gritty, um, you know, gritty sound. We can really focus on that one line, you know, those four measures or whatever and really get that sound out of that guy, which is cool. And, and it allows for, for a different kind of aesthetic, but I think that you know what is sometimes lost in that trade-off is spontaneity and the and the ring of the of the live raw vocal singing together. And actually, these days we've seen some groups have gone back to recording the old way, or we're, we're starting to see shifts back in that other direction. I know that, um, for example, Pentatonix recorded uh, "Run to You," the the track on their. Second album? Second album? Third album? I'm blanking. Uh, second album. Second album. Recorded that track all together, live in studio, if I'm not mistaken. That was one that they, that they tracked that way because they really felt like they had to get that live, raw aesthetic. And they, of course, they isolated their parts so that, you know, they could do the post-production on it, but that was something that was, uh, that was done that way because it really needed that sound. Let's talk about what post-production means. So, describe the setup of a recording studio for a contemporary acapella and it might not even be a recording studio. It may be somebody's closet in, the, in their apartment on the Upper West Side of New York, but or anywhere else for that matter. But describe the environment in which you record, and then how the recordings are put into a computer, and then what 
the person who takes it from there does next. Okay, so typically these days with with a recording process, you'll have truly, you know, it'll be some kind of home studio setup. So for me, for example, like right now I'm sitting in my home studio. It's just, it's basically a bedroom. For the most part, you know, it's just a microphone, any kind of somewhat controlled room. Core that into what's called the DAW, Digital Audio Workstation. So most people use what's called Pro Tools. I'm using a program called Reaper right now. And what that does is, you know, it digitally captures the audio that you're recording through the microphone. Once you have all your tracks recorded, you send it to somebody for editing, typically, um, because the, the tr- one of the trade-offs of this style is now that you know each individual part is so under the microscope, you need to uh, have somebody do a little bit of production before you go to what's called the mix phase. In the mix phase is where things get balanced and treated with EQ and reverb and things to make it sound nice. But before you get there, uh, you need to do timing and pitch correction because... It's as though you've, you know, you've put everything so under the microscope with the style of recording that any little imperfection sticks out a lot. And in fact, because of the style of, of the way things are done now, I think people have become really accustomed to hearing that perfection. Um, so anything they hear that is less than, than that perfection, if it's in this recorded style, really sticks out to people now. So. Um, editing has become a standard part of the process. Once it's edited, it goes to mix. Once that's done, um, if you're doing a full album or if you're doing a track for a specific use, you'll, you sometimes will master that track, which if it's a single track is really just another engineer getting their ears on it to make it sound even prettier. Um, or if it's in the context of an album, it's an engineer looking at the whole album together and making a lot of the same tweaks that you would make to a single track with a mix to a whole album together so that all the sound, all the songs sound uh, uniform together. And these days, often loudness is part of that, and they, they crank it way up and compress it so that it really you know is in your face and big and loud. And So that's the process these days. It's a lot of people, and sometimes that happens with people all over the world. Uh, I've worked on tracks. I'm working on something right now that I'm arranging here in L.A. Uh, it's going to be recorded in New York. And it's going to be mixed in Connecticut. So, you know, it's it's going to be all over the map, and that's, you know, not at all uncommon. It's pretty cool how, how that all gets done these days. What do you mean by style? We know there are musical genres. There's rock, there's jazz, there's pop, there's classical, there's rap, etc. But are you saying that there are different styles within acapella, arranging, recording, mixing? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are... Well, first of all, any of those styles translate to acapella. So you have, you know, you've, you've got any of those, those styles also done just without instruments and then it's an, you know, becomes acapella. The, the choice that you have when you're recording is, you know, how much of, how much production do you want to have? How many voices do you want to have? Because you have, when you're doing single track recording, an unlimited amount of voices you can use. You can stack things up forever. Um, and, you know, I, with a five person group, you can have, you know, sometimes a hundred voices on a track or more. Rob Dietz, let me interrupt you to play an example from Jewish music of this style of stacked, compressed, lush wall of sound arrangement coming from the album Acapella Treasury, Shabbos. It's Lev Tahor. Uh... One, two, three, four. Baruch 
You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. Rob, let's say you have three Jewish a cappella groups. Each one of them wants to record Havanigila. They want their own version. Your job as an arranger is to come up with three totally distinct versions of Havanigila that they can record such that the listening audience can discern that they are entirely different treatments of the same song. How do you do it? Okay, so one group might choose to do what's called like live live in studio recording. So they may do that's more of the old school style that we had talked about before where you know it might just be the six of them standing around a microphone or you know a single microphone or they have six individual microphones but they're all doing it at the same time. Um that's one one way that could happen which is really what you're doing is capturing the live arrangement, right? So whatever they did live um, they would do the exact same thing in the studio. Uh, you can also do that in a more controlled fashion where they come in individually and do it, but you're still only recording those six parts. That's a style that is sort of, uh, was more popular maybe, maybe seven and eight ish years ago. Um, kind of went away in favor of a more bombastic style, but is now kind of making a comeback. Um, again, thanks to, you know, groups like Pentatonix that have used more of that sound. And I think that the, you know, the expectation in the world these days is a little bit more that, what you see live is is going to be kind of what you get on record, and that you know they've had a bit, been a big part of driving that. But um, that's one style you could do. So the, you know, live in studio, you're just capturing the, you know the live arrangement. Another style you could use is you know the stacked style where you go in and you really don't you take you take the live arrangement and you throw it out the window uh, and you say okay we're just going to make this you know great music regardless of how many parts it is we're just going to record everything we need and the approach you might take to that rather than Saying when you rec- when you do an arrangement for a live group, you say, okay, I have six voices. This is all I have to work with, and I have to make this work. And you don't necessarily think about 
blocks of instruments or, you know, the way that, that music would be put together if it was just a full band, uh, because you don't have a full band. You don't, you know, even w- with six voices, you know, a six string guitar already has your beat right there. So, you, you know, your, your options are, are more limited and you have to do, you know, some tricks to get around that. In studio, you don't have necessarily have those limitations. So, you might think about something more in terms of like, le- rather than, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, you might think, you know, guitar, organ, drums, aux percussion, whatever it is, you, you'll just think about the instrument sounds that you want to hear and then you'll record as many tracks as you need to to make those sounds happen. So that creates a really distinct kind of larger sound. Another way to get to that is also to record the live arrangement. A lot of groups do that and then build on top of that. So you'll stack, you know, other, other instrumental parts that you couldn't do live on top of the stuff that you would do live uh, to create that larger sound. Those are the two main styles of arrangement approach in the studio. And then the other element is, so the third group might make decisions regarding a post-production they want to do. And you might have a group that uses either of those styles, but then makes decisions about how much or how little they want it to sound like voices. So for example, you could use any effect that you would use on a guitar or a bass or anything else you can use on a voice. You can create really distinct sounding recordings by adding distortion to voices, adding delay to voices, phasing, octavization, anything like that opens up a whole other palette of sounds for the voice to be something different. And there are groups that really have uh, have structured their entire sound around that. Uh, back in the day, there was a group called Five O'Clock Shadow in Boston. These days, uh, famously, a group called Aurora from out here in Los Angeles, formerly Sonos. Uh, they were on the season three of the sing-off. They structure their whole sound around that aesthetic of using effects pedals and studio studio tricks to make their voices sound like something other than voices. It's a really cool sound comments, questions, or you just want to fetch, go to facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf. We're talking about the different strategies that groups consider when they are recording a cappella music. So Rob, let me ask you, and then I want to make sure we don't run out of time before getting back to the sing-off, which I'm sure everybody wants to hear about. How do vocal instruments sound so real? In a cappella circles, we talk about purists and we talk about people who are just making music that is meant to be enjoyed. Purists will say, I'm not going to record anything that I can't perform live. And we've given some examples so far of some strategies or styles of a cappella music that cannot be performed live and presumably, in my experience, need to be rearranged and simplified in order to be performed live in some capacity. But many times people will listen to a recording of uh, an a cappella group and say that's phenomenal, and then they'll go to their concert and say, wow, that was a bit of a letdown. That was nothing like I heard on the recording, and they don't understand why. Number one... How do we get those sounds these days, and vocal percussion is the easiest example, those sounds that are made by the mouth to sound so realistic? How do we get that verisimilitude into what is really just the mouth making certain spitting and popping noises? And number two, is it possible to recreate that sound live in performance so that the live experience, while it may be different from the recorded experience, is equally valid on its own terms, equally enjoyable on its own terms? The way it's done in studio is, you know, you can use studio effects to bring out, um, for example, with a drum sound, right, you might you might use equalization to bring out different frequencies that make it, you know, sound more like a drum and less like a person. But also, you know, there there are approaches to this where you, you leave it sounding mostly vocal, and there are people that can do, you know, incredible drum imitations. You're an accomplished vocal percussionist yourself. Oh, you're making me blush. Well, it's radio, so we can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so in that arena, I, you know, I, I think you've got 
you have three choices. Again, it comes in three somehow. There's about three choices of how you could go about this. And one of them is, you know, if you're recording something in studio, you can use studio effects. So you could just take a, you know, you could take a sung vocal, ooh, and you throw distortion on that. And all of a sudden, and it gets all crazy. That's one thing you can do. You can recreate that live with pedals, or you can use, you know, other programs to trigger those effects in a live setting. But, you know, that's a lot of technology. It's complicated. Not many people do that. Another thing you can do is what I demonstrated when I showed what that distortion thing was, which is there are techniques of actually imitating, uh, instruments vocally. Vocal percussion, I think, is the most commonly known one of those. So it's, you know, creating drum sounds with your mouth, such as. So that's creating a drum sound with your mouth. And the less of the, of the sort of my vocalization you hear in there, the more like an actual drum that's going to sound. So for example, if a beatboxer was like, you'd be very aware that it was a person, but if that same person did, it sounds less like a human. Um, so it's a way to trick the ear that way. Um, you've also got any number of uh, vocal instrument imitations. A lot of people do trumpet sounds, and I'm not really warmed up, so I'll give this a shot, but <clears throat> you've got like, All those things. I did the distorted guitar before. These are all tricks that you can use uh, in a live setting and you know, just using those judiciously to uh, to imitate instruments creates a really neat trick effect for the audience sometimes, um, where they think they're hearing an instrument but they're not, and uh, it's a cool it's a cool experience. Which is why acapella live is such a great experience, by the way, because it's great to listen to this stuff. But you may ask yourself, well, then why imitate a trumpet? You could just listen to music that has a real trumpet or a recording that has a real trumpet. Indeed, and but then also, you know, that trumpet can't immediately switch over and become another instrument or a human or any of the other things that that a voice can do. So you know you use these things not necessarily to the exclusion of other things, but with in combinations with things, and, and they create this really cool effect. But so finally, you know, the other school of thought is that you just you know you use sung vocals to just imitate what an instrument would be doing. So for example, for a trumpet, instead of you know you might go and just sing it that way and, and sing it with the timbre, you know, that more forward kind of bright timbre of a, of a trumpet. Um, and when you stack that up, for example, you know, uh, Noda from the sing-off uh, does a lot of that. You know, they don't do like a – they don't do the trumpet imitation so much, but they'll sing with the timbre of a trumpet, and they'll when they stack that together, it's – you know, me doing that by myself sounds a little silly, but if I had five other guys with me doing that, it would sound like a big stack of trumpets. So um, those are the approaches to, to making that happen. I quite enjoy employing words and phrases to imply instrumental riffs and rhythmic patterns. It's something I picked up from my friend and frequent collaborator, Sean Altman, when he was with Rockapella. I utilized it a lot in arranging for Bitachon, Jewish acapella. The variety of styles we're discussing are compiled on my album from Sameach Music entitled Acapella Treasury Volume 2, Yom Tov. There's one track that I want to play for you from an album, from that album, that our discussion brings to mind in particular. It was purposely arranged as a riff-off between the classic and contemporary styles of the two groups that perform on the track, Beat Achon and 613. Here's Kane Yikanes. <laughs> Do 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 do
Listening to the world according to Gorf on jmintheam.org. Rob Dietz, please tell us 
What does a coach on the sing-off do? That's your, what is your official title on NBC's The Sing-Off? My official title is Vocal Coach and Arranger. Um, and so what I do is, so the groups will come in, um, you know, we get these groups from all over the country and they come in and in a period of, you know, at first, the first episode is usually about 10 days and then after that it's a week. Um, they have to be ready for the show. They have to prepare a song or two, uh, or three, something, you know, we have opening numbers too, um, for performance on the show. And, uh, often, especially early on, they'll come in with their, you know, stuff that they've done in their shows back home. They'll come with arrangements already ready. Um, sometimes we have to tweak those things for TV. Um, you know, either they need to be shorter or, you know, we want to feature some other part a little bit more or whatever it is, you know, for camera. Um, but, you know, those things have to be modified. But then, you know, as things go on more, um, sometimes the groups don't necessarily have an arranger who understands the process well enough to do it as quickly as it needs to be done um, or they need some help or, or whatever it is. So, you know, sometimes the further we get into a season, the team will do more arranging for groups and, and step in more that way. But um, that's part of it, just, you know, having the raw music ready to go. And then uh, in addition to that, it's also just, you know, it's teaching the music and coaching the music and, and making it the best it can be so that, um, you know, when we get to stay Age, uh, you know, there's a real full performance ready to go, and we don't have to worry about that. And um, you know, the the directors and camera people and, and all that stuff can just do their job and not have to worry about um, you know getting getting a performance ready in that moment. Um, so yeah, that's 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 the job. It's it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of. Uh, accommodating a lot of different requirements in the moment, um, because that you know the the group has one idea of what they want to present, and then you know the director will need to see something else for on the stage, and then you know the choreographers are going to have their ideas, and then you know it just there's on and on and on. Everybody has different different needs um, for what the final performance needs to be. So uh, my job is about you know helping those people kind of come to a consensus and consolidating their ideas and helping the group not go crazy trying to incorporate all the things that need to happen. That's pretty cool. Who uh, was your mentor who brought you into this? So, where does Ben Bram fit into this picture? And you may want to might want to tell our listeners who Ben Bram is. They may not be aware of his name, but they should. Be. Sure. Um, well, Ben is uh, the arranger for Pentatonix these days. He's their main producer, um, and he was uh, one of the. He, he had my job a season before I did, and then st- you know, st- stayed on when I came. So uh, he and I have worked closely together over those seasons, and uh, we have a camp together, Acapella Academy, um, with Avi Kaplan from Pentatonix, where we bring students from all over the country, actually all over the world, out to LA every summer to um, to hone their acapella craft and skills. So, Is there a website for that? Yeah, if you want to learn more about Acapella Academy, you can go to acapellaacademy.org. That's with the A in the middle shared. So acapella and the last A of acapella is the first A of academy. Uh, .org. Or, of course, you could just Google Acapella Academy, uh, and it'll it'll take you there. Two Ps and two Ls in acapella. Oh, that's good, right, because we're the only style of music that has multiple ways of spelling it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's Acapella Academy is yeah, the way it's acapellacademy.org. Gotcha. And uh, let's go back to Ben then. Uh, ben has a certain rare accomplishment in the world of Jewish music and the world, or Jewish musicians, I should say, and the world of acapella. Yes. So Ben uh, recently won a Grammy uh, for his work with Pentatonix. The six of them arranged uh, Daft Punk Medley together, which has like 130 million views on YouTube or something I saw last night. Ooh. So it's a ton of views, and uh, it was recorded and won a Grammy for, for arrangement. So that was really cool. So Ben was somebody that I met through that process, but my real... My my mentor in that process was uh, Deke Sharon, um, who is the producer. He's now the vocal producer for the sing-off, and he uh, has done work on Pitch Perfect 1 and 2. He's sort of the main guy for Pitch Perfect, and he just had this really successful Carnegie Hall concert, which was great. And um, he is sort of – he is credited as being what they call the godfather of acapella, of modern acapella. Um, 
because he really is one of the people uh, who early on drove this sort of new sound, especially in the collegiate world. Um, he was one of the first piece people to really drive that sound. So he's somebody that I worked with. You know, you asked before how you get started in arranging. Um, he was somebody who I worked with very early on when I was about 15. I went to his place in San Francisco and did a class with him and stayed in touch with him over the years. So I've been working with him for a long time and we've published music together and, um, just done a lot of, a lot of work together. So, um, he was the one that got me the job on the sing off, uh, for the third season. Um, and I've been working with him on that ever since and, um, on other projects here and there. So, um, he's been, he's been a real mentor to me through that whole process. And I've learned a lot about how to, how to work in the television world with him. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's been a, a really great resource and, uh, and insight into all those things. So, um, I owe him a lot of where I am now. <laughs> if we're playing Jewish geography, then Deke Sharon introduced me to Sean Altman and Deke, I believe, also introduced me to Ben Bram, who then referred me to you. There you go. So Deke is uh, one of the one of the major stars in our constellation over here. He is like Kevin Bacon, although it's it's even less than six degrees with most people. It's like a half a degree separation from Deke Sharon for most people. Final question for you, Rob Dietz. What from your Jewish background do you take into acapella music? And what from acapella music inspires your Judaism? Wow. Interesting question. You know, I think that, you know, just singing communally has been a part of my life forever. And I think, you know, I can trace a lot of that back to my time in, in temple, you know, going to, going to services, singing with people. Um, I always really loved that. You know, some of my earliest memories of harmonizing come from, you know, my time in services. So, you know, that's something that has really been a foundation for me. And it's something that I check back in with and think about a lot, um, when I'm performing and, and, and that feeling of of doing that in a really honest way and with other people that uh you know are are searching for something larger than themselves and doing that through harmony uh, i think is a huge part of what we do when we pray i think is is speaks to a real core thing that people look for when they listen to vocal music and then you know for me these days doing pella and and doing singing gigs is one of my the main ways that i am still active um you know in the i guess i don't know the formal you know jewish community you know i, I certainly consider myself you know jewish you know strongly you know culturally jewish slightly less observantly jewish but being able to go and do these events and um and share that music is a way that i still you know still stay very active with that community so it's it's really nice to be able to do that and to bring you know what i do into that context you know, share that enjoyment with with that side of my background and you know that side of who i am as a musician because it's all it's all really ingrained isn't it so yeah that's i, I, I it's checking back in with that community in that way for me a lot of the time Right on. I often say that Jewish a cappella is harmony in both senses of the word. It's musical harmony, and it's also interpersonal harmony, as in Jewish unity. Rob Dietz, coach on the sing-off, professional and accomplished a cappella arranger and producer. Thank you so much for taking time in Los Angeles to speak to us on the Nachum Siegel Network, The World According to Gorf. My pleasure. No better place to end this segment than with a collaboration between the two of us, Rob Dietz and Gorf. From the video by Pella, here is Mim Amakim. Mim 
According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. Visit Rob Dietz at human-feedback.com. You can find me at jewishcartoon.com and, of course, pellaproductions.com. I'm wrapping today's The World According to Gorf before the hour to make time for a special presentation by Dr. Jeffrey Lautman. Please stay tuned. This is Gorf saying Shalom. Hello, Torah Me Star Trek fans. I feel that it is important to take a break from Torah Me Star Trek for one show because today it is 70 years since the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. I have a close personal connection to this camp and to this day that I would like to share with you. Let me introduce you to my mother, 
Bertha Lautman, who was known as Bertha Berkovicova, from a small village in Slovakia called Vishna Pisana. Slovakian girls were the first ones to be sent to Auschwitz-Birkenau. And on March 26, 1942, my mother was in the very first train to Auschwitz-Birkenau. The number on her arm was 1048. She was not supposed to be taken because the decree was for girls 17 or older, but because my grandmother hid the older girls, they took her instead. So she was the youngest on the transport. She was the baby. She was taken to Auschwitz, where from March of 42 until the summer of 42, she was in the bunk that is known today as Block Smerche, the torture block. And if you ever go there, you will definitely be taken to it. It is in the back right corner near the execution wall. In the summer of 42, she was taken to Birkenau when it opened and put in block 27. This is a famous block that someday I hope you go see. It is the first block to your left when you enter. In the summer of 1943, the girls had a Passover Seder there. My mother's occupation in Birkenau was Lyshen Commando. This was a task where people who had died either by touching the wire or died in the bunks were collected by the Lyshen Commando and put in a little hut called Lyshenhalle and then once a day a truck or a wagon would come by and the Lyshen Commando would load them to take them to the crematoria. She did this for about 13 months then was transferred to Canada where you sorted prisoners' belongings. Although my mother said she wasn't a good smuggler, as the Canada workers would try to smuggle in food and other goods from the people's workers, and she was caught right away, transferred to another commando, and eventually became a lauferin, which means a messenger girl running around the camp. In October of 1944, she was transferred to Bergen-Belsen, where she worked in the prison hospital and was liberated on April 15, 1945. I mentioned that my mother was the youngest of the transport. My grandmother took her to Puprod, which is where the train left from, and if you go to the Puprod train station, you can find that plaque. And my grandmother asked the girls to watch over her. In 2004, my mother got a phone call from a lady in Toronto. Bertha, Bertha, are you all right? Yes, of course. She said, good, I'm glad, because last night I had a dream that you weren't all right, that something was wrong, and I promised your mother I would look over you. In 2004. My mother didn't speak much about her experiences until... A Cleveland High School teacher, Dr. Leitra Srebinski, got her to speak in front of her Holocaust class in 1973. My mother did not allow any of us to attend. That was an epiphany for my mother as she saw that this was an important endeavor 
to teach students, and she naturally hooked up with the students. In 1975, Dr. Urbinski and my mother led the first Holocaust trip of anyone, and they went back to Auschwitz, amongst other places. Going back to Auschwitz with my mother is a very unique experience. She starts you out right under the Arbeit Machfrei sign, and then she takes you through all of her existence in that camp. We came in, we turned to the left. Here is where they put me into some kind of a bath. Here is where they shaved my head. Here is where they checked me internally. Here is my bunk. I had gone with her many times, and it was always amazing to me to watch people from other tours drift away from their own tour and come join us. I went with her in 1979. PBS accompanied us and made a movie. It is called Tomorrow Came Much Later. You can still rent it. My mother took 12 or 14 different groups of students back over the years. I had always wanted to find a picture of her and a picture of her during the war. I knew that they took pictures of the prisoners of the first transports in Auschwitz and my mother remembers her picture being taken. I worked with the historians in Auschwitz and I was unable to find a picture. I was, ab I was able and have a copy of the first list of the transport and so I have her name there. And it was eerie to look at that list because it was eerie to look at the list with her because she would just look at the names and start saying what happened to each one of them. I also have a document in 1944 signed by Joseph Mengele allowing my mother to live. How do you like that? By the way, she was on the list of witnesses to testify against him should he have been caught. <clears throat> Being unsuccessful at finding her picture in Birkenau, I thought, what about the end of the war? And so I called the curator of the museum at Bergen-Belsen, and he told me that the pictures are part of the Imperial War Museum, since it was the British who liberated Bergen-Belsen, and that a lot of the pictures were on the web. I immediately went to the website and started searching through the pictures. It didn't take me long to find her. Two days after the liberation, she's in a picture of three women in a bunk, and she's the middle woman. When I showed it to her and asked who that was, she got real quiet and she said, Well, that's me. I told her, I told you I would find you. And I did. She and I then flew to England because there were also films to be seen. We were guests of the Imperial War Museum Archives Department. And we sat down and started going through the 70mm films. At first we were alone in a room, but when she started identifying different prisoners and different Germans and what their role was, the historians came in with their notebooks. Five hours and 15 minutes into the films, there she was walking next to a British soldier.
I got to steal that piece of history. Well, it's 70 years later. I didn't go to any Holocaust commemoration program. I don't like to commemorate it. It's never left me and I won't allow it to. I'll tell you what I did today. I'll start by telling you that there's a book called The Jews of Strupkov. I'm sure not many of you have heard of it. Strupkov is a smallish city in northern Slovakia. Melody Amsel is the author, and she goes through what happened to the Jews of Strupkov and surrounding villages including my mother's village, Vishna Pisana. I called her just to hear her story, and she told me My gosh, you're the ones that started it. Read the introduction. In the introduction, she says that one time she was looking at a newspaper article in the Jerusalem Post, and it had a picture of matzah baking in Strubkov. And she wondered, who in this picture are my relatives? And she started her search and created that book. Well, that picture isn't matzah baking in Strubkov. It's in my library and I'm looking at it now. When Dr. Rubinsky and my mother took that first Holocaust trip, it was a big deal in Israel and the Jerusalem Post came to interview her. They wanted to use that picture, and indeed they did. But my mother said, don't use matzah baking in Vishna Pisana. It's too small of a village. Not even God says goodnight to Vishna Pisana. Nobody will know it. Why don't you put Strupkov there instead? At least people will recognize it. And so they did. And so Melody Amsel read the incorrect headline and wrote her book. And so, in that picture, are my grandmother, my mother, two aunts and two uncles, and other villagers baking matzah. Today, I found online 1,750 pictures of Bergen-Belsen and its liberation. A lot of them I've seen, and a lot I haven't. And so while I was in the dialysis unit working, I also took breaks and went through pictures. I already have the picture of my mom, my mom two days after liberation. I already have the film of her walking next to a British soldier. But 400 pictures in, there's a picture of my mother next to another woman. So now I have another picture of her. Oh, and oh, by the way, she's baking matzah.
American Belgian, 70 years later. Matzot Lachamoni. Thank you, Jordan Gorfinkel, for letting me have this time. We'll be back with Torah Me Star Trek when it's appropriate. In the meantime, I will keep remembering the Holocaust. I will keep stealing history from it. And I will keep looking at objects and artifacts and pictures. I'll let you know what I find next.